So when their partner does need space, because everybody needs space, the communication that they can give their partner is, hey, when you need space, can you tell me how much you love me, that you need a little space, and then when you'll be back, when you think you could be back? Because then um, we're less activated and we can say, okay, well, they need space. They love us. We have our mantras. And after dinner or tomorrow morning, they said they can talk. I can learn to self-soothe or lean on other support until they come back. This is episode number 502 with Jessica Baum, Dating with an Anxious Attachment Style. Hi, everybody. I'm Sandy Weiner, and welcome back to Last First Date Radio, where we believe it is never too late to go on your last first date. And I wrote a book for you to support you on your journey to lasting love, both if you're in a relationship or you're single, it's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. And it is filled with 30 chapters. Each chapter has a tip, which I'm about to share. All of these exercises are designed to help you step more fully into your value. You can find it on Amazon for Kindle or paperback. And this week's tip is step number two, create a life that energizes you and fills you up. Oh, it took me only 50 years to do that, um, but I definitely lived most of my life just accommodating other people and putting everybody else first. And even though I did some work that lit me up, like I was married to a comedian and we co-wrote and I co-directed uh, a show that we did for Nickelodeon. I mean, that was exciting and I had an art business, but the work I do today as a dating coach is so much more fulfilling and I love every aspect of it. So if there's something in your life that you're not happy with, find something that brings you joy today and just tiny little steps can bring you closer to the life that brings you joy and fills you up. Before I bring Jessica on, I just want to give a quick shout out to my Facebook group. It's called Your Last First Date. If you're a woman over 40 and you would like a place for positive support with a group that is heavily moderated to keep it safe and sane, please join us at Your Last First Date on Facebook. And now for my guest, Jessica Baum. She is a licensed mental health counselor who supports people who are struggling with anxiety and relationship conflict, marital issues, and codependency. She's the founder of the Relationship Institute of Palm Beach, Florida, a group practice that provides couples therapy, family counseling. She also founded the Self Full Method and her sister company, Be Self Full. She is the author of an upcoming book, Anxiously Attached, Becoming More Secure in Life and Love, to be published in June of 2022, and you can pre-order it now. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. This is one of my favorite topics. I really, I think most, most of the people who come for counseling or coaching are suffering with an anxious attachment. And certainly most of the women in my practice uh, have an anxious attachment style. But for those who have no idea what that means, can you just tell us what is anxious attachment and how does it affect dating and relationships? Um, anxious attachment, the way I like to think about it is embedded patterns. So when we're younger and we're you know a baby and we're growing up in our childhood home, Someone with some anxious embedded patterns is someone who uh, developed a lot of inconsistency in their parenting. So maybe their parent was struggling and going through their own things and they were there sometimes and not there others. The child adapts by learning to get their needs met, but not necessarily trusting that their needs are always going to be met. So these are people that later grow up feeling like the shoe is going to drop and sometimes feel like they have a lower self-esteem or their sense of self-worth is a little lower because they're less trusting that they're gonna get their needs met or are worthy of love. And all of those narratives get developed as you know, kind of you grow up and become an adult, but the truth is it all boils down to nervous system responses when people are younger and how your nervous system develops um, based on the co-regulation and the connection that you have with your primary caregivers. So no attachment style is wrong. We all adapt. We all have several different patterns, but someone with a more dominant anxious attachment type pattern is someone 
who ha lives a little bit more in sympathetic arousal, who's always waiting for the shoe to drop, who needs constant reassurance and connection, always kind of trying to get connection um, in their relationships and some reassurance. Sorry, that's my dog in the background. So um, you can kind of tell who these are in the dating pool and there's nothing wrong with that. There are plenty of secure people or even other anxious people that can handle reassurance and connection and want to be able to provide that safe type of relationship to have a more sustainable and fulfilling relationship. The problem is, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, is certain kinds of matches can create a little bit havoc on your nervous system. So the thing I say with people who identify as having more anxious attachment or codependency, sometimes it falls in the love addiction bracket is really understanding your nervous system and start to really understand that you'll be able to like navigate your relationships a lot better. Yeah. Thank you for that thorough explanation. I definitely had a much more anxious attachment style when I was first dating for marriage. And my response was to, I started anxiously attached and then I became more avoidant as my heart got broken again and again. And is that a common, is that a common thing that you find in, in your patients? So like we as psychotherapists want to put labels and everything. And like I said, they're embedded patterns and we usually have a more dominant one, but we can also have other patterns within us. We take on both our primary caregivers. So if my mom was a little anxious and my dad was absent, I will have avoidance in me. It might not be what I, like my default might be to run and connect, but if hurt enough, my second default might be to shut down or not connect at all. So it can be very confusing because we want to have a label to identify and treat and help, but we have a lot of different patterns inside of us. And it depends on which, what the other person is activating. Um, even if you identify as anxious, but you date someone who's more anxious than you, or you have that girlfriend who's more anxious than you, your avoidant patterns might show up as well. So it's attachment is a combination of two people's energy, two people's nervous system and two people's protectors and how they come out. So it can get complicated. Um, normally we identify in one bracket, but yes, we can have different patterns show up in different relationships. And if wounded enough, we might not go for connection. We might actually start to avoid connection because that has caused so much pain. I've definitely seen people shut down and want to avoid pain. And I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking of a friend of mine who all of her relationships, she felt very secure in. She was always like proposed to in a short period of time. Men found her irresistible, but they would be super clingy and anxiously attached. And the last guy that she dated, or she's still dating, is um, had he somehow ignited a more anxious attachment in her because he wasn't as available and as anxious as the other, as her other partners. And it's been really interesting to see her work through it. And it's with a lot of communication about what her boundaries are and what she needs in the relationship, even though he couldn't give her as much time as she would want, she wanted consistency. She wanted to know that he would keep in touch with her. And I think for a lot of people who are anxiously attached, the communication piece is huge and it's often missing. So can you speak to, to that, to the importance of really being able to communicate to a partner what your needs are? Because it's, it's scary for a lot of people. Sure. And I think that, you know, it's great that she's working through it with someone. I think it's a dance of intimacy and I think we all dance around it. I mean, being truly intimate is hard and the more into me I see the more I can offer you to see into me and the more comfortable we are in seeing with each other and depending on who we match with there might be a different dance with just about everyone but I would say for someone who's more anxious in general that pairing with someone who's not okay with their anxiety could be problematic like so we have something called the domino effect and if I'm activated and I'm in an anxious state and that actually activates you that could potentially be a relationship that would be really, really challenging. So if you are more anxious, having a partner that, that can hold space for your anxiety, I'm not saying that they have to fix it or soothe it or love bomb you or take care of it, but that your anxiety doesn't give them anxiety. That's like a number one 
thing. You have to be able to have emotions in your relationship. You have to be able to have your anxiety. And it would be really wonderful if you could seek reassurance when you're anxious. So we learn, you know, how to be there for ourselves and we learn how to develop our insecurity through, you know, internal work, but it's also through the relationships that we develop. So if we have a partner who can give us a little bit more reassurance, doesn't ghost us, doesn't drop off, doesn't because of their own pain, doesn't avoid too much, but can be somewhat reliable for us, we can start to, our nervous system can start to trust that. So I think asking for that and knowing that right up, up front, like knowing that I, you know, I'm not going to stay in a relationship with someone who just drops off or just ghosts or isn't, is inconsistent with their um, communication is an important thing to share with your upcoming partner. Like, this is what I need. I need to know that if you don't respond, I learned that it's because you're truly busy. And then I learned to trust that your communication and your intention is to be in connection with me because I've had a history where my system doesn't trust that and I can quickly escalate. So I think that's a conversation you can have with someone that you're dating in the first couple of dates, if you phrase it the right way and you're really stating what you need. I also think, you know, people let you know what they are and if they drop off and their communication is inconsistent, it's worth having a conversation with them because that's something an anxious person will only wreak more havoc on their nervous system. So it's not going to be the best pairing. I also think that anxious people, um, they need to learn how to self-soothe, but also work with their anxiety if their partner needs space. So when their partner does need space, because everybody needs space, the communication that they can give their partner is, hey, when you need space, can you tell me how much you love me, that you need a little space, and then when you'll be back, when you think you could be back? Because then um, we're less activated and we can say, okay, well, they need space. They love us. We have our mantras. And after dinner or tomorrow morning, they said they can talk. I can learn to self-soothe or lean on other support until they come back. And we're not left hanging because a lot of what happens in the developmental years is we don't know when mom or dad is going to come back. So the activation is so big. So without having a time frame of knowing when you could get back into connection, it could promote more suffering on the anxious person's end. And if someone is needing the space, how they ask for the space is so important and it can teach an anxious person to trust the coming and the leaving within the relationship dynamic, which can be very hard for someone who's anxious. So much good information. I love what you said about needing space and also about self-soothing. So let's, let's first recap on the self-soothing and the communication part. We really need to know how to, how to self-soothe and often we are not taught to do that, or we are left and we, you know, we're so dysregulated that we don't know what's really dangerous and what's not. And we'll talk about triggers in a moment because a lot of that is from triggers. Um, and the importance of communicating, like the stories we make up when somebody says something like, I need space, that can be so triggering for so many people. And it means something different for everybody. And if you're not clear about what space means, it's so easy to make up a big story about what it could mean. And, oh my God, they don't love me. So just that, that little bit of communication, and I'm, I'm actually was listening to the Hidden Brain this morning podcast, and they were talking about communication and miscommunications and this show Home Improvement, which I never was a huge fan of, but they they had a lot of fights between the two main characters, the characters, Jill and Tim, I think were the two names. And uh, so much of it was different communication styles, getting angry because they felt misunderstood. And then Tim going to the neighbor and talking over the fence. Um, and the neighbor was actually using a lot of Deborah Tannen's communication <laughs> tools. Um, yeah, so interesting. Have you ever watched that show? I haven't, I haven't. <laughs> but I think that like micro little communication things can set people off, you know, when you study polyvagal, it can just be a roll of the eye and the next thing we have an avalanche going on. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you want to look for consistency and whether somebody actually is showing up, but if you're not speaking up, you don't really give somebody an opportunity to follow through and show up and, and do the things that will make you feel less anxious. 
Um, so let's talk a little bit about why you got into this field. I would love to know if you have your own story of anxiety, conflict, codependency. Uh, usually we are motivated by our own stories. So if you don't mind sharing, I'd love to hear. Sure. Yeah. And I wanted to first touch on, you know, the self-soothing and the regulating. Um, anxious people don't always know how to self-soothe because the wiring wasn't laid down in, in early developmental years. You know, when we were born, our mom stands in for the parasympathetic nervous system. So we don't have that developed. So she's not co-regulating or helping us self-soothe. When we get older, it's very hard to self-soothe. And so I always say, if you're anxious and you're listening and you struggle with self-soothing, the best thing you can do is call a friend and let another person's nervous system help you regulate your nervous system. And that then we learn to internalize that over time and that calling a friend and listening to somebody else at least holds space for you and listening and kind of being with someone else is the best kind of down regulator until you learn the self-soothing skills. So I just kind of wanted to add that because it, you know, it, there's a lot of shame attached to when an anxious person can't calm down their awakened parts or their triggered parts and, you know, what comes up for anxious people. And the truth is if they don't have that foundation built and the, the neuroplasticity hopefully helps us build it, but the way in which we build it is through relationships. It's through healthy relationships and then internalizing that. And that's how we build the self-regulating um, capacity that that's really the missing link um, for someone with anxious attachment. So yeah, I, of course I have my own story around it. And um, I struggled from a lot of anxiety growing up and I had a lot of um, separation anxiety, cold sweats, um, existential crisis, depression, I didn't really understand what was going on in my body um, throughout my relationships and really throughout my life. And I read every single self-help book I could get my hands on. And, you know, PM Melody's book, there was, I really identified as someone who was codependent. And that was really the bracket that kind of spoke to me. I remember um, I was in the hospital. I was hospitalized once for anxiety. And I just thought I had like a brain tumor or there was something going wrong with, with me. And psychiatrist like no you just have really bad anxiety like your anxiety is so bad that you're having panic attacks and no one was really explaining to me what the panic attacks were about so I was very scared and I remember reading uh, facing codependency I believe it was at the time and I just remember feeling like oh wow there are some answers out there and it was the beginning of my journey of self-help and my beginning of me just seeking some questions um some answers to what was going on inside me that was very scary. And I love my parents so much, but they had no idea what was going on inside me. They didn't have the tools or the understanding to really explain um, why I was so anxious or you know, why I struggled so much with self-identity or using my voice or anything you kind of label in the codependent bracket. So, you know, I throughout my life, I I have plenty of stories where I've bumped up against this over and over and over again. And it wasn't until I really started to identify with my anxious attachment. And I really started to understand my embedded nervous system and my embedded patterns and polyvagal, which is something, you know, us therapists knows, which I'm trying to get out to the mainstream, but really understanding how our nervous system develops, that I was able to like truly form the compassionate insight that I needed to heal my attachment system. And so I was like, not that all those codependency books didn't help me, they definitely did, but they weren't really explaining why my gut was lighting up or what I was feeling in my chest or why my whole body was having these like really big symptoms. And so it wasn't until, yeah, we learned fight, flight, freeze, but it wasn't until I really understand my atomic, my automatic nervous system that I developed the compassion to start working with it. and. Um, stopped blaming current events and start to connect to deeper, more primal sensations that were going on for me to start to heal them. Um, so it was a major shift for me when I, when I learned about my attachment system and, and studied a little bit more, which as being a therapist, we have access to. And, you know, part of my mission, which is probably part of your mission is to help women and, and other people get access to this information so they don't feel like they're going insane or that they're crazy when certain experiences or behaviors show up in their love life or just in their life and they can start to unpack these things and make sense of it because holding it 
is how you heal it, but making sense of it is how you shift from like shame to compassion. So that's there. I did, I've done a lot of couples counseling in my, in my private practice. I'm a Mago certified therapist. So I really understand the unconscious exchanges that we have in our relationship and the packs that we make and how our trauma can get replayed out in our romantic relationships. And, you know, Imago really believes that that's an opportunity to heal when that shows up. And it absolutely is. With the right support, it is an opportunity to heal. And I think support being key because without the support and without the insight and without the awareness, we can just be stuck in a perpetual trauma state, which can be very scary. Very scary. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. And I can relate to many parts of it. I definitely had terrible anxiety and I, it manifested as panic attacks later in my marriage when, um, and this was really interesting to me when I look back on it, it wasn't so fun going through it, but my ex-husband, as I mentioned, was a comedian and he was performing on the QE2, the um, transatlantic. We went on a transatlantic uh, cruise where he performed. So it was five days, I think, on the Atlantic Ocean going from New York to England. And I got into the cabin at night and I was already feeling really trapped in my marriage. And I felt like the whole boat was collapsing on my head. Like there was that feeling of claustrophobia. I'm trapped five days. I'm going to be with my husband and his parents were on the boat. And it was, you know, I couldn't really put words to it, but my heart was palpitating. I was feeling really sick and I couldn't sleep. And so I did some things to help me like get out to get fresh air. My husband was completely dead to the world, sleeping like a log, couldn't help me at all. And so I, you know, I called the doctor on board. They gave me some Dramamine, which helped me get tired. But every time I would hit the pillow to fall asleep, I would wake up in a sweat. And this continued for many nights. And even when I got home, I felt like I was outside my body, looking at the world from the ceiling. And I finally got put on some medication that was really, I used just for sleeping. And, um, and then it, it eventually went away. But to me, that was like a huge wake up call that my marriage had been terrible for a long time. And I did feel trapped and I felt trapped in so many ways and so disconnected from me. And so this was part of the beginning of the journey back to myself, back to really finding, like you talked about identity, back to finding who, who I was, what parts of me I had given up in the marriage to people please and keep the peace as I had always done. And it was so healing to have this wake up call. It was painful, but it was, it was really healing. So I, I think it's, it's really important to do this work and to know that help is available. And I love that you also mentioned that compassion is so important and not to feel shame around any of these things that we go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think the shift into more compassion needs to happen. And thank you for sharing your story. I mean, I think we all, we all have stories where, you know, just something just feels completely off and we're searching for, you know, some answers and, you know, a lot of, of what the work I do and, and what I write about is how we adapted as children and how we brilliantly adapt to stay in connection. And a lot of that is um, shutting down parts of ourselves and we do whatever we can to stay in connection. And then when we get older and we're in our romantic life, we do the same adaptations and we're not even conscious that we're doing the same thing to stay in connection, but we'll do whatever we can to stay in connection at the cost of self-abandonment. And all of that is just a protector. All of that is a way in which we're trying to protect ourselves from the feelings of abandonment or being alone that are often tucked right underneath the surface. So there's no blame, there's just understanding and it starts to make sense when we really start to understand how we uniquely adapted. And I usually use the word brilliantly adapted because our nervous system is brilliant and it's always trying to keep us safe. Even when it's not doing something that necessarily looks like it's helping on the outside, it feels like it's doing something to try to keep us safe and alert us of danger. And it's something that we need to pay attention to. 
Yeah, I mean, and so many of the clients who come to me feel like I can't be helped. I, I think I'm a hopeless case and they're not. <laughs> they're far from hopeless. They just haven't gotten the right kind of support yet. And it's really important to find good supportive people like a good therapist like you or a dating coach like me who goes deeper than just, you know, go find the right outfit and learn how to flirt better because it's so much more than that. And so much of dating is learning about yourself. And when I work with a client, we always spend a good amount of time taking a break from dating and really looking at the patterns and what we've created to survive it to this point and how we can learn to thrive by <clears throat> working on all of those things that were working. So let's segue into triggers because we've talked about them and we've skirted around them. Um, if you can define what a trigger is and some of the tools that people can use when they're tr triggered in a relationship. Sure. So I use the word trigger um, on social media, but I've been using the word awakened instead. And here's the thing, the reason why when I think of trigger, I think of something like violent and it's, it's a big word. And the truth is what a trigger is, is really an awakened part of ourselves. So when we're in a relationship or when we are in life and we feel sensations that are big and we have experiences of fight flight freeze fawn when we have experiences where our body is just kind of going off in fireworks or completely shutting down you can refer to that as a trigger or activated state or what i like to say an awakened state and it just means a younger part of us is awakened and brought to consciousness and so usually this happens in any relationship. And I think, you know, it's great that you stop people and work with people on their patterns. And I think if you even date someone who's more secure or Mr. Perfect, you're still going to have these awakened states because the patterns live within us. They'll just be more forgiving relationships to work through them, but they'll still wake up these parts. And so when I see a client in an awakened state, um, it's about holding that state. Because when we can hold that state for longer and sense into it and make sense, oh, how old were you when you originally experienced this state? And it's in the relationship of you and me and people that does our work that holds this part of us, whether it's terror, it's usually terror, anger or deep, deep pain that gets awakened in um, infancy and early adulthood a childhood that gets then later wakened up in our romantic relationships and even sometimes our other close relationships. It's when we can hold these parts or these states or these awakened parts with someone and understand where they started and make sense of them that leads to full integration, right? And that's what we're going for. We're going for integration because that's where the healing happens. And when we, you know, when we have these triggered, quote unquote, triggered states, awakened states, they're very sense, they're the right brain sensing states. So they're usually more limbic in nature. They're usually more flooded in nature. They're very big. They're more right. And by holding that sense with someone's really safe, you know, someone that you have really um, formed a safe relationship with and that can help co-regulate you and not necessarily even take you out of that state. We want those parts to show up. We want to be with those terrified parts and we want to be with them and welcome them in safe environments with safe people, because the more we can do that, the more that trauma becomes integrated. And that's the best way I can explain it. And relationships, good, bad, or indifferent, bring up those awakened states for people like you and me. It doesn't have to be the relationship that heals it. It can be a healing relationship that helps you heal the awakened states that show up in their relation in your current relationship. And that's why I always say, like, there's not necessarily a bad or, or right relationship. I mean, there are relationships that are toxic and abusive. So, you know, we can put those in other categories, but there are plenty of relationships that just awaken us in such a way that that's where the flashlight, that's where the work is to be done. And sometimes your partner isn't the one that does all the work with you. Sometimes it is your coach or your therapist that starts holding some of this space different people have different capacities to hold that type of space. But it, it, we want these triggered or awakened places to come up because 
that's where the healing happens. Healing doesn't happen when we're never activated. Healing doesn't happen when we're never conscious about what's coming up. Healing happens when we are activated and we hold space with that activated part with safe people to start to make sense of it and um, integrate it essentially. Hope that answered your question. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that the body piece is a really important part of this where you feel something in your body. And, and it's, um, I think another part of triggers is that we tend to ruminate and not let them go. Whereas when we have a felt like an emotion and we really feel it, it's usually something that passes within seconds, you know, feel joy, feel pain, feel sadness. We usually try to push away any difficult feelings, but triggers, I think of, you know, old things that old stories that come up. And um, I know that like when I'm with my mother, I get a lot of triggers. And I, I was just telling my son, cause we went together to visit her recently. And it's, it's um, I'm so much better at not being reactive, but it's still, it's like work for my brain where I'm working it. Okay. That was a trigger. Okay. Now I'm okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, so any, any tips on what to do when you're triggered um, so that we're not working so hard and feeling so exhausted. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great question. Um, yes, I have a lot of tips for that. First of all, the fact that you're aware of when you're in a more triggered state, so a more awakened state, you're thinking, you're hearing, you're seeing everything shifts to a protective mode and I'll label it. Oh, I'm in a protective state right now. I'm looking for someone, the drop, the ball to drop or the next mean thing. Sorry. I have my mom. My mom's dog is here for a very short period of time and he is struggling downstairs and my husband's oh, no. So I apologize for that. <laughs> um, so anyway, so when you're in a more awakened state, uh, your so 80, this is 80% of the information is coming from your body up to your brain, right? And so our brain wants to come up with this dialogue or this narrative around what is going on in the here and now? Because my body is sensing that something is really off. And 90, like most of the time, our narrative is completely wrong. Most of the time, our, narrative, our thinking brain is much slower than our body's sensations and our body's awareness. So we're trying to make sense of the here and now when our body is in neuroception is just like really kind of sensing danger around me, right? So when your body is sensing danger, whether it's your mother setting you off or something else, our body goes into sympathetic arousal. <laughs> so sorry. Or if so it's your dog setting you up. Yeah, my dog is setting So one of the best thing you can do is um, focus on your breathing. And I don't want to be that therapist that's like, oh, focus on your breathing right now. But the truth is your body thinks it's running from a bear. It thinks it's in danger. If you can slow down your breathing, particularly your exhales, you're sending the message up to your brain that you're actually not in danger. So if you could drop the narrative and know that the narrative doesn't really matter right now, you're in an activated state and slow down your exhales. There's box breathing. There's different types of breathing modalities and get on the phone with someone and practice your breathing. Or if your mind is going, repeat inhale and exhale and extend your exhales. Your respiratory system happens to be the only system that you have control of when you're hijacked. So if you can slow down your breathing and your respiratory system enough, you will cue your brain that you're not actually in danger and you will slowly come out of that, ex, uh, that state. Now, if you can't do that, you can call a friend or a coach or a colleague and maybe they can slow down your breathing by looking at you, slowing down their breathing and helping you slow down your breathing and get out of the story. I always say the story is like pouring gasoline onto the fire. Like what you shared, you have some insight of when you're in a triggered state. You're lucky because you have a little bit of dual awareness in those moments. In those moments, if you could say, thinking brain, thank you for thinking. I am observing you, but I'm not going to pour more gasoline on you. I'm going to just repeat inhale and exhale and start to work on box breathing or extending my exhales or call someone who's just going to help me breathe. And, or if you have a mantra around, I'm in a more activated state right now. These thoughts aren't really my ventral, we call it ventral social connection thoughts, but they're not really my normal thoughts. 
They're just the protectors that are out right now because I don't feel safe. And then bring yourself back into just breathing. Yes, you can trick your body back into more parasympathetic, you know, more into connection back out of a survival state. Hope that answers your question. Yeah, those are all great. I um I I think breathing is so essential and learning how to do either box breathing or even I've I've seen something recently where it's two quick inhales and one slow exhale. Something that you can remember is really important and i love the labeling you know once you're labeling you're you're actually distancing yourself a little bit from the experience instead of being it you can be a little bit outside of it and i think all of these things help you to slowly come out of that state and become more regulated which is so crucial crucial i also think too sandy like some days i'm more accessing more awareness than others So it's also like some days you might be able to have more awareness. Some days you might be able to call a friend and then some days you might not. And that's not because you're less evolved. It's because sometimes you're just less resourced and, you know, there's no shame around, you know, it's great if you have a light bulb moment and you're able to say, oh, my mom is activating me and I'm able to do something and take these steps to get it back into, you know, a calmer place. And there are other days where your mom might activate you and you can't. And all of that is okay. You know, that just because you can get more, I guess, more in back into a state of calmness sometimes doesn't mean that's going to always be the case, but slowly over time, neuroplasticity changes slowly over time. You realize that you do have more options in some of those heightened states. So there is healing, thank God. And um, (laughs) it's a process. It definitely is a process. And for me, what also works is, limiting the amount of time that I spend with people in my life who family members, people I'm not going to actually cut off um, because they are part of my life. And uh, they're an important part of my life that I want to keep, but I create boundaries about what that looks like. So when both my parents were alive, my father lived across the street from my mom, they were divorced. He lived in a in an assisted living and she lived in an apartment with her then husband, uh, her second husband. And I would visit them both for maybe a half hour each. I would say to them, I'm, I'm coming to town. I have a half an hour and I'm gonna come visit you. Would you like me to bring anything? Or I make it an activity, something that I know, like when I went to visit my mom this time we baked together. And so it was, it was less, us just sitting around and activating nervous systems and more let's eat a meal together let's bake together um so that that really has worked for me yeah no and i love that because we can't just avoid people who (laughs) activate us right then we become more on the avoidant scale and we're not really healing sometimes we have to limit and set boundaries. And if we can look at it as your mom's your biggest spiritual teacher, (laughs) you're limiting her her, and you're having interactions with her. And when she activates you or awakens something in you, you're going to bring that to a safe person to work through. And in that you're healing another part of what she's awakened in you, right? Past, present, or future, that you can use it as an opportunity. If you have safe people who can help you integrate it and hold it, as an opportunity for more healing for yourself. And when I think of things, a lot of things that way, it empowers me Mm -hmm. that even on my hard days, if I bring what comes up for me to save people, then I can use it for my own spiritual growth. And I'm not telling you if you have um, abusive people in your life or people that you can't be around not to set boundaries. I'm saying there are, you can't eliminate everyone and there are huge golden opportunities for growth when you interact with people that bring or awaken um, these parts of you up and you feel the safety of bringing them to people who can help you integrate them. So finding out what's right for you is really important because I know there's people out there that's just like, eliminate everyone. And I'm like, (laughs) no, you're eliminating the feelings that that person brings up inside of you. That's what you're doing. And so, yes, you should eliminate or kind of eliminate really toxic people. I'm not necessarily saying that, but I'm saying part of what you're doing is you're avoiding what that person brings up in you. And when you're ready to not avoid it, 
let it come up and bring it to safe people to help you work through it. And then that person won't hold that power. You won't have to eliminate them from your life completely. Yeah. And it's, that's really good advice. There's so many people, especially in families where they are not people you chose, they're people you grew up with and they are often our biggest triggers and learning how to navigate the family issues to me has been one of the biggest areas of growth. Um, I've talked a lot about my youngest daughter and the conflict that we've had. And we traveled together recently in last winter and it was a disaster. <laughs> and um, But it, it led to an incredible, many incredible conversations, which led to us getting closer than we've ever been. And she had to be ready for those conversations. And she's now applying what she learned from me and us to her roommate. And she said, you know, I think my roommate was given to me so I could learn the skills that I needed to work with you. You know, it was just like this, she had this epiphany, which was incredible and not something she was open to earlier. So I did say to her, what if everything was happening for you and not to you? And she was like, oh, that's really good. I like that. So it's kind of like what you just said. These are our spiritual teachers. These are ways that we can empower ourselves to actually grow from the most difficult situations in our lives. Yeah. I love that. You just said that, you know, what is everything? What if everything is happening for you, not to you? And I think, you know, so many and it, it can be so easy to say, you know, I'm stuck in my trauma or things are happening to me. I think everyone who's listening can identify to that. And I know what it feels like personally to feel like stuck in your own trauma. But I do, I do really believe that the universe, people, life is always trying to help heal you. That, that as hard as it gets, if you keep looking and you stay open, that there's usually an opportunity for growth and healing. And no one said it was going to be easy. And I think our children or in our partners, they are the ones that we have the contracts with the most to keep healing and they can be the most rewarding. And uh, we didn't talk about rupture and repair, but not learning how to have conflict and not learning how to repair the conflict is part of the reason why I think a lot of people become people pleasers or fall into the codependency or they're so uncomfortable with conflict because conflict was never really taught to them um, at a young age, you know, it wasn't allowed. So, you know, we all adapt that way. So that's beautiful that you and your daughter are at a place where you can have these deeper, more meaningful conversations. And I hope it keeps evolving for you. Thank you. Yeah. She said to me, you know, we're getting along so well, why don't we have a travel do-over? And I said, absolutely not. I love you. And we get along best when we don't travel and don't live together. And I know that because I've had many times that I've tried again and again and again to like, oh, things have changed. So I think, you know, we have to appreciate the moments and also know realistically what are the limits of, right? (laughs) Um, there's so much we could talk about for hours here and the repairs and the patterns and the chemistry and all the things that, that really we get tripped on. But, um, I would like to end with any final words you have for people with an anxious attachment style who want to go on their last first date. First of all, everyone with an anxious attachment style always wants to go on their last first date. (laughs) So, um, I feel you, I totally understand that, um, learning to trust the process, learning to be patient, learning to be around people who give you a sense of safety versus excitement, um, learning for consistency, trusting your feedback from friends and support, um, trusting that the right person or the right fit will come when you're really staying honest and you're not going off love bombing or other chemicals that get released. It, released. Um, I would say someone with anxious attachment, time and consistency are so important. Um, and if you really, you can fall in love, but if you really want to heal those wounds, time and consistency matter the most and finding reliable, dependable people is really, really important, not just in your last first date, but like in your whole life, 
who's showing up for you, what your friendships are like, what kind of community um, do you have around, you know, what's your support system? Because the more you can have healthy support around you, the more you'll be able to recognize that um, when you start to date that, you know? So safety, 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 safety is so important. People who are slow, steady and consistent could feel boring, but they're perhaps what your nervous system needs the most. So that's my advice for them that's helpful at all. So helpful. I think one of the biggest lessons I learned through attachment study was that secure, securely attached people often are overlooked because they come across as boring and not exciting enough because our system is so used to interpreting love and romance as excitement and all the things that uh, we see on TV and on, a, on movies. And I mean, every time I watch something on television, I mean, it's entertaining, but it's so unrealistic. And really just that safety piece. I mean, uh, you know, having, having your support system, knowing that felt sense of what it is to feel safe in your body, safe within yourself and safe in a relationship is so crucial. And I would say one more thing, like for people who are anxious, your patterns are still going to show up. And I know you might not want to hear this right now, but your patterns will show up no matter what, but they will be more forgiving partners. There'll be partners that you'll be able to work through and get more conscious around and their patterns will show, show up. So it's not that we find the perfect person. It's that we find a person that's willing to do the work with us to get conscious with us or the patterns come up anyway. And we find ways to work through that um so you don't want to pick a dangerous person or you want to learn around what healthy chemistry and not healthy chemistry is but you also want to know that your patterns are going to show up because they want to show up those parts of you want to show up so you can heal them you can heal them you can really see them you can start to understand them and you can integrate them and that's a lot of you know the work that i i do in the book i just finished talks a lot about, you know, healing those patterns and the anxious avoidant dance in particular, because people are fascinated with that <laughs> dynamic. So that still might come up a little bit and their patterns might still surface, but there are more forgiving relationships than others for you to do your work with. That's a great message. I think people think it's one and done. You heal and it will never happen again. And, you know, I've been doing this work for probably 20 years now and learning communication skills, boundaries, understanding myself and things still come up. I mean, it's, we're human, you know, I still get triggered. I still have difficult conversations where I'll shut down and I'll feel flooded but I have the tools to deal with it and it's much quicker than it used to be. Where I used to get stuck in rumination for weeks, days, years, you know, like stuck on, a, on why did I say that? Why did I do that? I know myself better. I like myself more. I understand myself more. And that's what's possible for anybody who does the work to really be able to heal and know that you have the tools to deal with things when they come up. I love that. Yeah. And I think that's why I chose to write this book really is, you know, I just want to get this information out there like you and want people to start to understand their, their nervous system, that there's no um, fairy tale ending, but there are relationships that I call it like your cosmic partner. You know, there's, there's a person out there for you that you meant to heal in tandem with, that you can have the rupture and repair and you can have empathy and build and still have your horrible days and your good days. And, and those relationships are the ones that we grow the most in. Um, they are certainly not without conflict. Um, that wouldn't be a very evolving relationship. Um, and so, you know, I talk a lot about what interdependency looks like because I think a lot of people um, in our culture try to be independent as a reaction to you know all of the codependency and the truth is we need each other we need to depend on each other we're going to get wounded in a relationship and we heal in relationship so all of those things are really true and backed by neuroscience and so it's very very um, hopeful information that we can rebuild 
the neuro, you know, wiring up here for self-soothing and that we can have relationships where even if there's rupture and conflict, that there's tremendous repair and that repair builds more empathy and allows us to get closer to our partners or in your case, your daughter or other really, really important relationships that tend to touch our deepest parts. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Jessica, what is the best way for people to find you? So yeah, my relationship is beselfful.com. You can find me on there. You can find me on my Instagram, Jessica Baum, LMHC. Fingers crossed I got hacked this morning. (laughs) So um, you can also find my new book on Amazon. I'll just hold it up. It's called Anxiously Attached, Becoming More Secure in Life and Love. And um, it's available on pre-order now. So on my website, if you put the information in that you pre-ordered it, you will get um, bonus material, bonus meditations. A lot of the book is somatic and um, through the body. So that, that's, those are three ways you can find me online. Um, but yeah, I'll be promoting this book in the next couple months and you know, just trying to get this information out there like you have been doing wonderfully with your podcast and your book as well. So it's just nice that, to know that we're out there and really trying to just help people navigate this, um, which you and I know so many people are secretly sitting there trying to navigate it or not and just wanting this information because I was that person at one point in my life too. And I'm still learning and still um, working through ruptures and, and things like that. So just having honest conversations like this means so much to me. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really love the conversation. And I know that my listeners will benefit so much from this material, from your book, from your Instagram. I know you're, you're on there all the time when it works, when, when, um, you know, just giving so much great information. So thank you for the work you do. And same to you. Thank you so much for having me today. And I'm sorry about my dog. <laughs> Your dog was just saying, I want to be heard too. <laughs> yes, right. There's a need down there. I have to go. That's right. to. Thank you everybody for listening today. If you love our show, please rate and review on Apple podcasts. It means so much to the continued growth of our show. And as always, here's to your last first date. If you are ready to get unstuck, gain new tools, become more empowered, and finally find your last first date, I'd love to talk to you. Fill out an application to be considered for a complimentary half-hour love breakthrough session at lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. That's lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. I look forward to talking to you soon.